Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Henry Rome about nuclear negotiations with Iran. Then, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about what this all means for the United States and U.S. policy in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Henry Rome is deputy head of research at the Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy, and he's a longtime watcher of Israel and Iran. Henry, welcome to Babel. Thanks so much, John. It's great to be here. Back in February, many of us felt that we were close to an Iran nuclear deal or the revival of an Iran nuclear deal. We still don't have one. What happened? I was among that group as well. So this is a question I've been wrestling with over the past few months. I think there are basically two explanations for why we're sitting here in July with no deal. The first is that a deal was extremely close at hand. There were invites sent out for a signing ceremony. There was a deal written. And then the Russian demands after its invasion of Ukraine really threw a wrench in the process. There was diplomatic momentum. And that has helped to really sideline the process. The U.S. and Iran were bogged down in fights over the Revolutionary Guard, terrorist organization status. Iran, I think, saw the invasion of Ukraine as benefiting it politically. It distracted the West. It made the West more reliant on Iranian energy sources. And I think essentially that what was a fairly delicate and sensitive process thrown off, and I think probably over the longer term, by the Russian invasion, and it really kind of set the whole process off. I think there's a second explanation, which is that there is not a deal now because there was never going to be a deal. That if there wasn't a Russian invasion, there would have been other factors come into play. There are structural reasons in terms of Iran's distrust of the U.S., Iran's demand for economic guarantees, et cetera, et cetera, that would have reared their heads either way, and that essentially something else would have gotten in the way. I don't know for a fact which is better. I tend to fall in the former camp. I think that there's still maybe a one in three chance that there ends up being a deal. So I don't think that it's a predetermined outcome here. But that's as best as I can I can wrestle with it because it's quite a challenging situation and a lot of whiplash, I think, for those of us who have been watching it. Do you think the Iranian government really wants to make a deal or are there parts of the government that want a deal and parts of the government that don't want a deal? I think Iran has long been fairly ambivalent about an agreement and that in contrast with the U.S., which I think it's fair to say has been quite eager to secure a deal. I think the Iranians have always had a more measured approach that I think Iran is open to a deal on the right terms. But I think at this stage, the Venn diagram between what the U.S. administration would be willing to offer just doesn't overlap. But I do think it's important to keep in mind that the Iranians can change on a dime and that its positions are not as constrained by domestic politics as it might appear. And I think A really key example of this is the kind of back and forth over the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization, which I think had been kind of presented as an immutable Iranian policy and that the U.S. would need to move on that in order for there to be a deal. But in recent weeks, there's been shifts from the Iranian side in terms of entertaining, potentially delaying that, 
removal or discussion in favor of removing other related sanctions to try to compensate for that. So I think there is movement. I am still skeptical that there will end up being an agreement. And there are lots of reasons why Iran would want to keep the prospect of a deal alive. But I do think that there is perhaps a bit more flux than it might appear from the outside. On the other part of your question about where do key institutions fall on this, it's still my view that the Raisi administration, especially the foreign ministry, kind of as always, is more supportive of a deal than other elements of the regime. I'm not sold on the idea that the Revolutionary Guards are dead set against a deal driven by economic considerations, because I think the guards are kind of like a house in a casino. They always win. They win under circumstances of sanctions when they can corner the market on exporting oil. And they win if sanctions are relieved because the government has more money to funnel to their accounts, as well as greater access to international technology. So I think to a certain extent, the kind of conversations in Tehran are very difficult for folks on the outside to discern. But I think ambivalent is where I kind of net out about where the Iranians are in terms of a deal. The Biden team has said for many months that there would come a time when making a deal wouldn't make sense because Iran would have gained too much knowledge, would have enriched too much uranium. There was a, a sense back in the spring that that time was imminent. They still haven't declared it a deal doesn't make sense. Do you think we're ever going to reach that point? So that's right. And the U.S. position, even before this spring, was that we were in a weeks, not months situation and that Iran's nuclear program was advancing at such a rate that recapturing the benefits of JCPOA would just become harder and harder to such an extent that it wouldn't be worth it to the United States. That was months ago, and we are where we are. The U.S. has long said that it's being guided by a technical clock here, not a chronological clock. And that's by way of explaining that it is Iran's progress in the nuclear program that is driving the calculations about what the U.S. would recoup by returning to JCPOA. But I think it's become pretty clear at this point that it's not technical or chronological, but a political issue. And the political decision from the U.S. has been pretty clear at this point. And in a lot of ways, it's actually a mirror image of where the Iranians are, which is that there's a desire to keep the possibility of a deal alive, even though the odds of a deal continue to decline. I think what we're seeing here is the kind of technical non-proliferation community kind of clashing up against the political realities that the U.S. is facing right now. And that is the U.S. does not want to turn its back on JCPOA because that would require deciding what to do next. And all of those options are quite messy and costly and complicated, especially headed into the midterm. So you're right that the kind of talk about deadlines has really faded away. Iran's nuclear program has only increased since that point, but JCPOA is still on the table, even though the kind of nuclear benefits that it would convey continue to be reduced. A couple of weeks ago, I heard a, a former U.S. national security advisor argue in private that at some point Iran is going to get a bomb and the U.S. is going to have to think in the longer term about shifting toward a policy of deterrence. Do you think that's a crazy idea? I mean, both in terms of what the U.S. will have to do and, and whether U.S. policy is going to have to pivot from denial to deterrence? 
I don't think it's a crazy idea because if the Iranians do end up getting a bomb, I think the U.S. policy options are pretty limited at that point. And the real option would be to try to deter them from using it and also to try to find ways to keep Iran from using a nuclear umbrella to advance its regional objectives and also try to contain any kind of proliferation cascade. So I think it's a fallback for sure. But I think there's there's also a reason why decades of American administrations have tried to avoid having to rely on that fallback for all those reasons. And I think trying to execute a deterrence policy would probably require much more military investment in the region, a lot more effort to try to reassure partners in the region, all things that I think with the renewed focus on Russia and the goal to try to pivot to China are things that U.S. presidents don't want to have to contemplate. So I don't think it's a crazy idea. I think it would be the option if it comes to that, but certainly not the preferred option. Now, when President Biden was in Israel a couple weeks ago, he and Prime Minister Lapid signed a Jerusalem declaration that argued that the U.S. is prepared to use all elements of its national power to ensure that Iran never gets a weapon. Do you think that phrase, all elements of its national power, means the same things to Israelis and Americans? Well, I think the U.S. and Israeli positions are pretty clear on kind of two ends of the policy spectrum. On the one end, on JCPOA, clearly the U.S. is supportive and the Israelis are opposed. On the other end of the spectrum, an Iranian breakout to a weapon. I think it's fair to say that the U.S. and Israel are quite aligned on using military force to try to stop that from happening. I think it's between those two poles that the issue is much more complex. And I think it's where the divergences become even more significant between the Americans and the Israelis in the kind of world of no deal and no bomb, which, by the way, I think is the most likely outcome for for the foreseeable future. I think the Israelis want more, more political pressure, more economic pressure, and a credible military threat. And I think the Americans are not really interested in turning up that dial to the extent that the Israelis want. So I think it's in that in-between space that there's going to be a lot of disagreement and some you know, friendly tension between partners over the coming months and perhaps longer. The way you drew the spectrum on the one end is, is Iran doesn't have a bomb. On the other end is Iran is close to having a bomb. But the other part of that, extending that spectrum out, it's Iran does have a bomb. What do you think the Israelis would do if we came to a point where Iran did acquire a nuclear weapons capability? Back during the prior nuclear crisis a decade ago, there was a lot of talk from the Israeli side about whether an Iranian bomb represented an existential threat to Israel. Netanyahu's view was that it did. There were a lot of folks in the security and defense establishment who took the view that it was a serious threat, but not existential. This is in the Israeli security and defense establishment. Exactly, in the Israeli establishment. And the, the logic there was that an Iranian bomb is a real challenge, but when you talk about something being an existential threat, is the option to pack up and kind of go home? No, of course. I mean, you have to make policy to try to address that kind of negative outcome. And I think the Israeli policy would really focus on deterrence, of course. It would be, I think, a very costly approach because it, it would require focusing a lot more resources on strategic weapons, nuclear weapons for the Israelis, as well as 
I think having to contend with an Iran that is much more aggressive, having to kind of design an approach towards a country like Saudi Arabia, which I think is reasonable to assume would be the, the most likely to follow suit from an Iranian weapon. I think it would really complicate relations with the U.S. or at least having to reshuffle the, the current approach between the Israelis and the Americans. And I think there are other implications as well. I mean, it's, you know, I think it would really impact the amount of money the government has to spend on defense versus other things. I think it would impact things like the tourism industry and perhaps willingness of people to, to come and spend time in Israel. These are all range of issues from the kind of extremely serious to the manageable that I think Israeli decision makers would be facing and the reason why they don't want to have to be facing it. I have no doubt that Israeli strategic decision makers would come up with, with a new approach. It would just be far, far from ideal. And how would that deter Israel and what kinds of Israeli actions would no longer be thinkable if they felt that Iran really did have a weapon? Well, I think there would have to be new rules of the game, essentially, between Iran and Israel that would have to be negotiated in a kinetic way. Under what circumstances would Iran threaten to use a nuclear capability? How would it try to message that? These are all things that the Americans and the Soviets worked through for decades. I think from the top of the list would be, does Iran try to explicitly extend a nuclear umbrella to its allies and its forces in Syria and Lebanon? Does it constrain Israel's ability to try to interdict weapons shipments, things like that? I think that's probably where the friction would immediately arrive. And I think there are that kind of process of negotiating what is kind of within bounds and what is not, it would be a very contentious and fairly intense process. So there's some political scientists, you know, Ken Waltz and others, who've argued that a more proliferated world is a more secure world because everybody deters everybody else. I think what I hear you saying is that figuring out what the rules of the road would be within a more proliferated Middle East would actually be a very messy process. Exactly. And I think the kind of real criticism in, in the political science literature of, of the kind of Waltz idea, or one of the main criticisms is assuming that countries will behave rationally and responsibly with their weapons. I think that there are some who would say that the Iranians are not deterrable, that they would be at risk of using a device or transferring a device to a terrorist group. I'm not necessarily in that camp, but I think all of those questions would arise and be real challenges. The other aspect is how does a country like Israel deal with Saudi Arabia that might be interested in acquiring or developing a nuclear device under that circumstance? I think it just unlocks a whole series of not only between Israel and Iran, but broader issues that they would prefer to avoid. My money would be on that. We don't end up in a situation like that. We've had a fairly constant Iranian government attitude toward both uranium enrichment, toward negotiating with the West over Iran's nuclear program. We are now looking potentially at a political transition in Iran as the supreme leader leaves the scene, as he gets increasingly elderly. And, and, and perhaps people are talking about the rise of the Revolutionary Guard as a potentially more important force in Iranian domestic politics going forward. Do you expect the Iranian government's approach to the nuclear question to change over the next decade, or do you think it's going to fundamentally stay the same? I think when it comes to the transition away from 
the current supreme leader, I don't expect holding all else equal a, a major shift from the Iranian side, because I think the attitudes towards the nuclear program have likely been well socialized and are the result of consensus at the top of the Iranian regime, both in terms of the kind of political elites as well as the security establishment. From their point of view, I would say the nuclear strategy has largely worked as designed. It's provided Iran with a threshold capability. It has, I think, become an object of focus for the West at the expense of other Iranian activities. There are really kind of tangible domestic benefits that it has conveyed, although, of course, there's a very significant domestic cost that is also incurred. And I think the attitude that it's better to be just short of a bomb and get those benefits without opening up Pandora's box of what being a nuclear weapons state would entail, I would bet that, that, that that's going to endure over time, given that I think even if the leader departs the scene, that there will broadly be continuity among the individuals and institutions that would come out of that process as running the state. But this is the money question, and I don't think anybody has a clear and convincing view precisely about where this is going to head. Henry Rome, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thanks so much. Next, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about what this all means for U.S. policy in the Middle East. Rome talked a lot about how for the United States, the JCPOA negotiations are about political rather than technical or chronological issues. And he talked a lot about how that's because the United States looks at it and they don't want to turn their back on the deal, even as it becomes less likely for a deal to be struck because of the costly or um, messy options that come after that. What are those costly and messy options that would come if the United States can't strike a deal with Iran? If there is no international agreement with Iran, that means that the only way to control Iran's behavior is deterring Iran. That means having enough troops and firepower next to Iran that the Iranians consider that a credible threat. But maintaining that kind of presence is very expensive. Some countries likely won't want to have a large American troop presence. Traditionally, a lot of U.S. presence in the Gulf has been at sea, but boats at sea rotate in and out, and they take time to get there, and they take time to come away. For some time during the Obama administration, we had two aircraft carrier strike groups off the coast of Iran. We only have three at sea on station at any given time. So two-thirds of our carrier strike group firepower was focused on Iran. One-third was focused on China. I think a lot of American defense professionals consider China to be a much more serious security threat to the United States than Iran. But having to constantly deter Iran, which you might have to do to prevent proliferation from breaking out in the Middle East, would be a very expensive proposition for the United States. Yeah, I think that the administration hasn't quite sorted this out yet, but it seems to me that President Biden's trip to the Middle East is part of this, sort of anticipating the deterrence that that John is alluding to. But I do think that they need to strike a balance between being not panicking or being overly aggressive, but also not being overly conciliatory to towards towards Iran. So we see Biden coming to the Middle East. We see more talk about sort of this oft-promised and never-delivered Middle East NATO more security commitments than probably the administration would have wanted. And I think the president publicly not discounting the possibility of military action. I think all of these are sort of elements of 
deterrence, acknowledging that Iran is much closer to enrichment levels that would enable it to begin weaponization. One alternative strategy is that you let the region reach its own equilibrium. But if you want to pursue that strategy, you're looking, A, at the possibility of a lot of proliferation in the Middle East, with a whole series of Iran's neighbors getting weapons. And you're looking at the possibility that in some sort of escalation scenario, Iran or one of its neighbors would use a weapon. And the Iranians and their neighbors haven't really thought through how you would strategically use a weapon. And as they were beginning to think that through, you could have mistakes. So you could certainly argue that the United States should just leave the region to find its own equilibrium. But when it comes to the Iranian nuclear program, and it comes to the fact that the Israelis probably have a nuclear weapon and the ability to deliver it, and don't do it in part because they're relying on the United States, there's a real possibility that the United States pulling out of the region would not only lead to proliferation, it could also lead to the first use of nuclear weapons since 1945. I think that brings us to an interesting next question. We've heard people in Washington and even recently on Babel talk about the U.S. withdrawing from the region and saying that maybe the United States wouldn't even be that focused on the region in the coming future. As you think about where that's playing out, what do you think it means for the U.S. if there is not an agreement and Iran is perpetually on the cusp of getting a nuclear weapon? Well, I think I don't know how you avoid the escalation that John is referring to unless you provide security commitments to Iran's traditional adversaries in the region, much like he said. Because their traditional adversaries in the region are going to react to a nuclear-armed Iran or one that's closer to a nuclear weapon through arms buildup, possibly greater involvement in proxy wars with Iran throughout the region and beyond. So I, I think that to a certain degree, America's commitment to the region or security commitments to the region are going to redevelop as Iran further develops its enrichment capabilities. Interestingly, the Israeli establishment is split on this, with some people saying that the JCPOA is a mistake because it gives the Iranians too much, and others, very senior defense intelligence officials saying a completely unconstrained Iran is so much worse a situation than any situation the JCPOA or something like the JCPOA would create. And there's a serious difference. I think a lot of politicians like the clarity of deterring Iran. But a lot of defense professionals are thinking about how much you don't know, how much uncertainty there is. The nature of intelligence is you never know everything you wish you did know. And they say leaving so much uncertainty, leaving so many fewer eyes on the Iranian program for Israel is a much greater risk than giving Iran more money, more access to the international system, because at least that gives you tools to manage Iran. And an unmanaged Iran is an Iran that might require a war, and a war with Iran could be incredibly costly in terms of life for Iranians and for for neighbors. I think that talking about that uncertainty too, so I think Roman, you touched on this a little bit in the interview when you talked about how for Iran, which we think of as an unstable actor, their policy seems a bit more stable than the United States moving forward. I guess, how do you think partners and even the Biden administration is thinking about the future if a deal is struck and if there's a new administration that kind of moves beyond that? I don't think the Biden administration has much choice about what a successor administration does. But it's an interesting paradox that the Iranians kind of do what the Iranians do. 
it's not clear how the Iranians stop doing what they've been doing. It's the American side that keeps having different strategies and different parameters. And it makes it hard for American allies to figure out what they should do. I think the instinct of allies is let's essentially line up behind the United States and then complain the United States isn't doing everything it should be doing and push the U.S. to do more. I think that's been the the go-to strategy of allies for a long time. It's easier to pursue that if the Americans are pursuing a predictable strategy. When the Americans are oscillating between extremes on this strategy, I think it puts allies in a very uncertain position for what can they count on, what kinds of capabilities will you need, what kinds of relationships will you need in three years' time, five years' time. In some ways, it plays into the Iranians' hand, especially because the Iranians are pursuing a fairly deliberate, fairly steady strategy of continuing to draw attention to Iran and forcing people to engage with Iran and trying to trade off that to drive things for Iran. I think that's been their strategy. And Americans haven't quite figured out how to keep them from pursuing it. We haven't won yet. We haven't lost yet. I'm not sure the Iranians feel they need to win or lose, but there's always an American impulse. We have to put this problem completely behind us. We have to definitively solve it. And frankly, I think that Iran is going to be a problem for American policy for the rest of my professional career. I don't think there's a solution to the Iran proliferation problem. There are ways to manage it, but that's a very hard thing to to talk about in certainly in American political circles and even in American security circles. I think John is exactly right. And we need to think about what it means for Iran to remain on the cusp of a nuclear weapon for the foreseeable future, because I see them able to extract more concessions from the United States, from the international community, from regional adversaries when it's on the cusp and there is no deal, rather than if there is a deal, or maybe even if they do have a nuclear weapon. That sort of middle of the road is is somewhat their, their sweet spot. I would also say, though, that I think the pullout from the JCPOA of the Trump administration was was a considerable blow, I think, to trust in the United States more generally. And you actually saw this with the Iranian public and the sort of precipitous decline in public approval for the JCPOA after Trump pulled out of the JCPOA. And, you know, it's not the first time this has happened. I remember after 9-11, Iran was being somewhat cooperative in terms of security cooperation with the United States. There was sympathy involved in that. And then suddenly you see George W. Bush's Axis of Evil speech where he threw Iran into the mix. So I think this isn't the first time, you know, the U.S. has kind of shifted gears quite quickly on Iran. And I think it's difficult to sort of rebuild that trust when it's already somewhat acknowledged that from administration to administration, you might not have a single threat or strategic threat for your foreign policy when it comes to Iran, especially. We did an interview with Wendy Sherman early on when we started Babel, and I asked her about the issue of trust. And she said, your trust isn't really important. You just make an agreement and you monitor the agreement. I'm not sure the Iranians ever had a huge amount of trust in the United States. And, you know, part of Iranian predictability is being predictably hostile predictably carrying out acts of violence, using proxies, using gray zone warfare, asymmetrical threats, all those kinds of things. But even in that hostility is a certain predictability. And the challenge, as I say, for partners and allies of the United States is we've made it hard for people to figure out where we're going to be. And that makes it hard for partners and allies 
to join us in that journey because they have no idea where the journey is. That ends up putting more of the onus on us. When I think Iranian proliferation is an issue that you get a fair amount of international consensus on. But in some ways, our politics and our policy is making our own job harder rather than easier. It's making the Iranian job easier rather than harder. And I think that we have to find a way to flip that. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.